That's how you open the podcast. There you go. Say it to the audience. <laughs> Welcome back to Earwax, an Amoeba Music Podcast. I am Cody, joined by Hillary. Hi, how are you? Hey, Cody. Uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about Duke Ellington's Ellington at Newport here in just a second. It's our first live record. Hillary, what is your favorite like era of jazz? Like, What type of jazz do mm. you gravitate to? That I feel like I should have a very specific answer for this, but I truly do like different uh, types of jazz from like different eras. I I don't talk about this a ton, but I studied jazz vocals like most of my life growing up, and most of the songs that like my vocal teachers would throw at me were like sort of leaning more like big band era because there are so many standards written by uh jazz like big big heads of that you know age um and almost all of those standards have been covered so many times that they're all just like classic vocal pieces now uh i think that later on i I think like so much of my life growing up, I assumed that that's just what jazz was. And then later on in life, when I started discovering like more like newer jazz, like slightly more experimental, you know, like you have Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk. And um, I think that they all bring something totally different to the table that is very uniquely jazz and it fits like a different circumstance like if I want to just relax and like really feel the mood then I will probably put on a more contemporary jazz musician but there's something very romantic about older jazz that has its own place and they're they're both just very versatile forms you know (laughs) you know I love them both I love all eras of jazz is my short answer uh, for a very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> Took the scenic route. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. jazz. Yeah, jazz. You know, all those giants are standing on the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. and so you don't get Miles Davis if you don't have L- Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. You don't get, you know, Bill Evans if you don't have Art Tatum, and mm-hmm. so it is different eras there's different styles i tend to like smaller combos Mm -hmm. Uh, i like uh stuff like cool jazz which Mm -hmm. we'll kind of touch on today just a little bit like with brubeck and and things like that totally but that earlier um stuff with like louis armstrong and like the dixieland sound even before that there is a a a place for it it's a it's an energetic music Mm -hmm. there's just it's so vibrant that you can't help but be intrigued by it. Um, what? So you said jazz vocalist. Do you have a jazz vocalist that you that you studied a lot, or that you connect with, or whose standards? Or? I mean, a lot of them are classic, you know, jazz vocalists like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, uh, Billie Holiday, you know. But uh. My partner and I will talk uh, quite a bit about how when we were first getting together, we both uh, sort of fell in love over this song, I Get Along Without You Very Well, and Chet Baker's version of it is very beautiful. Um, 
But yeah, and Nina Simone obviously is a big one. Um, Sarah Vaughn, uh, I don't know. Sure. There, there are so many beautiful jazz vocalists that I, I just love the idea of using vocals as an instrument on their own and seeing how they can supplement the rest of the piece, not necessarily be the dominant force, but when that instrument is tuned so cleanly, you know, you can't help it if it shines like forward in the piece. That's beautiful. Yeah. Actually, in all the time that I've worked in Amoeba, which is over 10 years now, I've only been gifted a record by a customer once, and it was a regular customer I helped every Sunday. I'm sure he still comes in. I just don't work Sundays anymore. And the record was Inside Betty Carter. And uh, it, she's a wonderful jazz vocalist. And this is like one of the more experimental records like to show off her jazz vocals. I still have it. Uh, it's in perfect condition. If he's out there, I still listen to it. It's great. Thank you for the record. There you go. I for me, Bill Evans is not a vocalist, mm. anyways. Or is not isn't Bill Evans is not a vocalist, but he's the jazz musician that I probably connect with the most. We just talked about new releases about the the upcoming reissue of Sunday at the Village Vanguard. That right. is a must have record for anybody who wants to get into jazz. That is a brilliant, brilliant trio jazz record. Uh, there's so much warmth in his playing. He had a, a fairly tragic life, mm -hmm. but the beauty in all of that is really shown throughout all of his records. He played with everybody, you know. Um, I Yeah, Bill Evans is like, he's the one that I connect with the most. I can listen to him. Rain, shine, snow. He's just, oh, he's so wonderful. Very cool. I can totally see that in you, definitely. <laughs> Cody, I feel like jazz is a very like heady genre and a lot of people are intimidated to even approach it because there's like, it almost seems like there's like a depth of knowledge required to even uh, breach the subject of jazz. Does Do you ever, do you feel like that intimidation factor was ever anything that kept you away from the genre? Initially, uh, yeah. And it's funny that because like when you talk with a lot of jazz fans, they're going to say roughly the same thing. There's like two or three records that are kind of your can be a gateway album. Uh, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, mm -hmm. um, Time Out by Dave Brubeck, maybe Mingus Alam. That's a little... Um, it's a little dense, but it does it does feel intimidating because it does feel heady. However, if you can find that gateway record, and it doesn't have to be one of those. Mm -hmm. This record we're talking about right now, uh, that, or that we're going to be talking about, Ellington at Newport, that's a great gateway record. Totally. Um, it's bombastic. It's loud. It is full of life and full of energy. If you can find a gateway into jazz what you'll find is a wealth of information and brilliance because everybody's playing with everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows everybody in and, that whole community. Yeah, and once you find, like if you start with one of the titans, like Duke Ellington, then you're going to find that 
Clark Terry or Johnny Hodges played with him. And then you start like, well, I like what they're doing. Who did they play with? Right. And then you're inevitably you're inevitably going to find that these guys played with other big names who then played with other big, big names. And it's like the exploration of that is almost as fun as listening to the music itself. For me, anyways. Totally. I, I think that jazz is so fascinating because you don't get that interplay of big name artists between self-contained rock bands, mm-hmm. right? Like the Stones didn't play with the Animals. The Animals didn't play with the Yard. Like that doesn't happen mm-hmm. in other genres. Whereas if you go down the list of people who played with Miles Davis, what you're going to see is the rank and file greats mm-hmm. of jazz. And then that is your gateway into exploring other avenues of jazz because even though they sound like a particular, even though they sound a particular way on this particular Miles Davis record, when they're now leading a band, they have a totally different Mm -hmm. sound. And you can pick and choose what you connect with based on the artists that you find. It It's one of the funnest, uh, genres to explore in in my opinion totally and you were talking about how in most other genres you don't see a lot of crossover and while bands like the yardbirds you know like a super group was technically supposed to be announced like that was the hype about the yardbirds that it was so crazy that these bands band members were crossing over to make this new thing you know um Whereas in jazz, it's just implied. It's just implied. If it's one artist, it's implied that they're also playing with usually many other artists. And uh, with jazz, more than any other genre, it is also sort of implied that when you're listening to a band, you should be looking into who that band is that you're listening to. There's a little more research involved, which I think also might drive people away from the genre. But I feel exactly what you said. Jazz just needs a good gateway record to get you into it. And that's why this record in particular, Ellington at Newport, is such a good example of that because it was a record that was taking a group of people that weren't really ready to care or pay attention. And it grabs you by the collar and just sort of forces you to. And that's the power that jazz can have that it's sort of just a, it's a beautiful concept that there's an entire genre of music just dedicated to exploration, discovery, improvisation, and connection with the other people around you. A lot of larger piece jazz uh, outfits like this one would be impossible without that sense of human connection. Like that's another skill on top of everything else that they're doing, that you all are constantly working together to find this art piece in real time, and you need to rely on the people around you to do that. I agree, and we'll get into like the like the energy that that creates mm-hmm. when we cover the record, which is coming right up. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about some in-store events that are happening in all three locations. 
Berkeley doesn't have anything scheduled currently, but please make sure to check in with their socials and our website regularly for any upcoming announcements. San Francisco, though, uh, they're having local rock band The Stone Foxes for an in-store performance on Saturday, September 9th at 4 p.m. You can get The Stone Foxes' latest album on the other side at Amoeba that day and get it signed after their set. In Hollywood on Thursday, August 31st at 5 p.m., which is the day this is airing, we will have Ash Nico doing a signing. Uh, She's a pop artist, sort of trip hop, trap pop, if you will. Her new album is called Weed Killer, and it's out now so you can get a copy and go to the signing today if you feel like it. On Thursday, September 14th at 5 p.m., we're going to have Kay Flay for a live performance. She's an indie pop rock artist, and she's promoting her new album, Mono, which is out the following day on September 15th. But you can pre-purchase the album for admission, and you'll get a commemorative poster with it. You can find out more information about all of our in-store events at Amoeba.com. Awesome. (laughs) The most recent What's in My Bag episode as of this recording uh, is the artist Spelling. This one was recorded at Amoeba San Francisco. It released on August 21st. She's an experimental pop musician, and they're promoting the album Spelling and The Mystery School, which came out on Friday, August 25th. Some of their picks included Talk Talk, The Party's Over, uh, Tori Amos's Little Earthquakes, and Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. All really solid choices. Very cool. Yep. All right, that's all we got for uh, in-store events and what's in my bag. Now to take a look at what's coming up this week for new releases, I am thrilled to bring back our tried and true Spencer. Spencer, what have you got for us this week? This week's new arrivals include Earl Sweatshirt's album, Sick which is coming out on both black and light blue vinyl. Willie Nelson's Phases and Stages will be available also on vinyl. John Prine's self-titled debut, John Prine, which was featured ah. on this very podcast, is getting a new vinyl release. So make so sure to get nice. that. Very nice. Indie stalwart Jeff Rosenstock is getting a CD and vinyl release for his album Hell Mode. And last but not least, for our huge fan base awaiting updates for the band Him. Your day has finally come, and it includes vinyl releases for the albums Deep Shadows and Brilliant Heights, Love Songs, Volume 666, Love Metal, and of course, Razorblade Romance. It's like the whole hymn discography, I would imagine. So you must be very excited to own all four. Stoked. Hillary? About him? (laughs) And that's my time. I will see you guys (laughs) next week. Okay, we're going to get right into the album of the week. This week, we're talking about Duke Ellington's Ellington at Newport. It is the first live record that we are covering. It was released November of 1956. It is his second live record, and it was produced by uh, George Avakian. Okay, so let's 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 talk about this, because we mm-hmm. kind of had a discussion about when, when we're going to address this, live versus quote-unquote live. This is the... Absolute perfect album to bring up this topic, the importance of a live album, what a live album is, essentially, and the validity of a live album, uh, or uh, the validity of an album calling itself 
live. Yes. Whatever your favorite live record is, it has almost assuredly been polished a little bit in the uh, in the studio afterwards. I one of my favorite live records, one of the classic live records, Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous. It's like Awesome. Oh yeah, it rules. 50% live, 60%, maybe. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Live at Leeds, The Who, that's an incredible live record. Shows them at the peak of their live powers. It's not all live. Because <laughs> <laughs> live settings, live shows are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Mics might go out. Uh, amps might blow. You just never know. And when you're putting out a record, you want to capture a good recording Mm -hmm. and sometimes a live recording isn't a great recording. Yeah. It's such a funny thing to think about. A live recording doesn't necessarily just come out of nowhere. Most of the time you have to plan it in advance (laughs) um, to make sure that the recordings are going to be up to standard, you know, and um, your people are marketing them in advance now, you know, uh, at the time that this record came out, um, it seemed more of a studio choice to alter a live record and push that on the artist um, to make sure that they were displaying their artist as best as possible and like putting out the prettiest piece of art that they could. But that is not necessarily the case with this album no there are a lot of reasons why this album is the the lp version of this album is about 40 percent actually live and one of the reasons there's a there's a bunch of reasons but one of the big reasons that is not really anybody's fault is that live recording on lp records was still pretty new it's a very new technology in 1956 so there's a lot of moving parts that folks just don't really understand yet so there's some songs that were doctored up after the show i have to tell you like i know that this is not necessarily uncommon but i had been reading so much about um the importance of this live performance and what it did for duke ellington and his career and i'd been listening to it like crazy and then when i finally came across the piece of information that said well it's not totally <laughs> a live record and you're not really hearing what happened exactly that day mm-hmm. on this original release i was furious <laughs> I felt like I've been duped, been lied to. I have a whole section in my notes just titled "Lies", lies. all capitals. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm excited to get to lies. Yes, let's <laughs> let's talk a little bit about Duke Ellington before we get to lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Duke Ellington is a bedrock, excuse me, a bedrock of jazz history. Important to note that at the time of this record, he was already a bedrock of jazz history. Mm-hmm. He was well-established. I think this is an interesting album because we've covered a lot of debut records mm-hmm. so far, and this is well into his career. He had been well-established decades earlier. As a matter of fact, by the time that this record was coming around, his fame was starting to dwindle yes. uh, exponentially. His official website says that he has composed that he composed three thousand songs I in w- his lifetime. I read over a thousand. That's a triple. Yeah. Okay, 
it far outpaces anybody in jazz, and it honestly outpaces most people in general. He's like a standards machine. He's touched like almost every jazz standard that we still hear today. And he's written 3,000 more songs than I have. Yeah. Oh my God, same. <laughs> same. When you put it that way. <laughs> it is important to note that uh, Duke Ellington did not care for the classification or the word jazz. And mm-hmm. he would describe his band members or musicians that he liked as beyond category. Mm-hmm. There's a whole discussion about the the use of the word jazz. Totally. Um, some folks pre- uh, prefer the term black American music mm-hmm. or it, th- that, yeah, that it falls under black American music. Duke himself would just describe, you know, Clark Terry or Johnny Hodges or any m- members of his band as beyond category. Mm-hmm. We're going to use the word jazz. Yeah, for the purposes of... The genre sorting yeah. at the store. That's yeah. We filed him in. We filed Duke in the jazz section at Amoeba, and it's also important to note that Fifty Six he'd already navigated his big band through both the Great Depression and World War Two, so <laughs> that's pretty intense. And after World War Two, things have started to shift away from big band. You've got the the advent of like crooners and like classical pop music Mm -hmm. and then bebop comes along which is a lot edgier a lot faster than than big band jazz also television is really exploding and so folks aren't going out to jazz clubs a lot or as much and then after bebop you have hard bop and cool jazz that's what's going on right now Big band is just not in vogue, right? Mm-hmm. Folks like Miles Davis are on the rise, John Coltrane, Mingus, Dave Brubeck. These are, like you mentioned, his fame is on the downswing. The other thing that's going on is rock and roll. It uh, starts to take the youths by storm. <laughs> Them youths by those storm. Youths. Yeah, those youths and they're rock and rolling. Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Fats Domino. Many of these folks are laying the groundwork for a sound that was just taking over. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things are working against Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And big bands in general are folding at this time. But Duke was such a prolific composer that he is able to subsidize his band from the publishing royalties. Well... Partially. Partially. I mean, he is, he's technically able to pay his band members, um, but a lot of these royalties coming in are off of pieces he composed many, many years earlier, you know, like he's not making a ton of money off of them, certainly not enough to pay as many musicians as he employs regularly. And at this point, his fame is dwindling so much that he's regularly playing shows at like ice skating rinks. It's rough and like birthday parties and stuff, taking any gig he can um, just to get by. I I think it's impressive that someone in the in that era in jazz is able to he's composed so much that he's making any money mm-hmm. off of compositions yeah, that's that's really incredible the ice skating rink that's tough Ouch. that's can you imagine oh, like man going to the local rink and duke ellington and his big band orchestra what a bargain insane <laughs> so newport 56 is a big opportunity almost 
like a last gasp for Duke Ellington and, and his orchestra. The Newport 56, it was the third festival. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the festival was founded in 1954 uh, by Elaine Lorillard and George Ween. Is it not wine? I definitely looked that up. <laughs> it is Ween, Phew. like the band. A uh, different George, George Avakian, who produced this record, he works at Columbia Records, and he convinced the label to subsidize the festival by paying appearance fees in exchange for the recording rights. So he was like, Columbia is going to pay for everybody's appearances. They'll pay for, you know, as long as they get to record the show, and then they'll put out box sets, they'll put out records based on that. I saw really mixed information on this. Okay. Because I saw several things that said he didn't have a recording deal at the time that this festival came about and Columbia reached out to him after this performance to secure a contract. Right. I also saw several things that said he had been in touch with Columbia leading up to this festival and they'd secured a contract to uh, help lock down the recording for this festival. Yeah, I saw that he didn't have a a deal specifically with anybody, but that the festival itself had a, a deal with Columbia. So... I understand what yeah. you're saying. Gotcha. And then I don't know how that they, how they were going to navigate individually releasing those records, but the but Columbia had the rights to the recording of Newport 56. It is also important to note that a uh, a group called Voice of America, mm-hmm. which is the U.S.'s state-owned news network, they have a microphone set up. At the festival. At the festival. Yes. They are not supposed to be recording, but um, they they broadcast shows and stuff internationally, and the musicians were told more than a few, few times, do not play into that microphone. Please play into the Columbia microphone because that's the one that's recording. That's this gonna, is important information. Yeah, it's going to come into play. Yes. <laughs> Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no, no. Go, you the the LP as we mentioned was relatively still new at the time, and live recording on LP was like a, a really really touchy uh, technology. We're coming out of the era of the seventy eight, which is if you get yeah, seventy eight. So oh boy, wow, they're thick he- shellac. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like a standard gramophone style record. They're very heavy. They're very fragile, more so than the traditional style of vinyl, 33 and a third. Um, and uh, yeah, they're still around. They're still around. And man, you could knock somebody upside the head with one of those Ooh, things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they're heavy, but they're so brittle. Mm-hmm. They're so brittle. And the LP is a little bit more flexible. Um, and there's more recording time available, which is kind of why they moved away from the 78. But live recording on LP was like, it was pretty new. Mm-hmm. This lineup for Newport 56, you said you had some names. Oh, yeah. Hit me with some names. Okay, so is we're in Newport, Rhode Island at Freebody Park. This is in July of 1956. Please, you're doing a great job of setting the scene. Thank you so much. Uh, the lineup for this festival, some of the headliners alongside Ellington, uh, Count Basie, and Louis Armstrong, and then just like a slew of supporting acts around the festival included Milt Jackson, Charles Mingus, Sarah Vaughn, Art Blakey, Dave Brubeck, 
Donald Byrd, Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald. It's basically everybody at the time who was, uh, who had been a jazz legend or was about to become a jazz legend. Definitely. You can look at this lineup, and we were talking earlier about like gateway records. You can pull. Pick one pick from one of these, any, yeah, any can, act here. Yeah, you can pick one of these artists and start to follow that pathway down. This lineup is outrageous. Art Blakey, it's just insane and duke ellington and his orchestra they opened and they closed the final day so everybody gets to see everybody else and then they've got to follow all of that and by the way their closing set was late late at night it was starting to thunder a little bit weather's terrible everybody's exhausted from the day they say we saw ellington at the beginning of the day you know uh He's like, his popularity is starting to die out anyway. Everybody's ready to pack up and head home. And he's keenly aware of what was riding on this performance because he was getting ready to debut his first long form piece that he had written in years. And it was so new, in fact, that the band had hardly any rehearsal time before playing it live. This is the Newport Suite, which is the first half of the original album. And so Duke Ellington was really nervous about this Newport suite. And he had the producer, George Avakian, book time in a studio for the next morning to fix any potential mistakes. Mm -hmm. So he's not super confident about what's going on. He's like, we're going to need to fix this. We're going to need to fix this. But this is his big thing like he's he's certain that if anything is going to win the crowd over this is what's going to save them is the newport suite first two days of the show weather is trash Mm -hmm. super rainy not great but the crowds are still showing up you're the 10,000 13,000 people and then the final day when duke is uh, supposed supposed to go on when duke is supposed to go on it cleared up and the stage is set for a make or break show it would be a perfect circumstance if half of his band didn't show up late <laughs> and or completely wasted. Uh, he was extremely stressed out leading to this performance. Paul Gonzalez, uh, saxophonist in the band, who is an extremely important factor in this set, was totally drunk by the time he showed up and... Uh, Ellington was fairly worried about his competence. Yeah. So when they open the show, like you said, there's like at least at least four people that are not there, and it has been suggested that maybe they were doing their part to patronize small businesses mm-hmm. by uh, checking out the local watering holes. <laughs> so kind, so thoughtful of them. <laughs> oh my gosh, this. It, Imagine being in that place if you're Duke Ellington. That would send me spiraling. Uh, uh, and I'm sure for them, too, they were like, we played a million shows. You know, he's worked with most of those musicians for many years, you know. So th- for them, this is just another day. And it's just another day in a world where people just aren't that excited to see Duke Ellington anymore. Yeah. And apparently he was fairly used to it. He was just like, yeah, that's we're just, we'll just cover it. So they played a couple of songs. They played the national anthem to open the night. Then they played a couple as just kind of a teaser, and then they left. And Those, by the way, are not 
recorded on this original album. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but this uh, original recording of the live performance only has five songs on it. Five songs from the set, far fewer than were actually played. Yeah, there's a 1999 release. It's called Ellington at Newport, parentheses, complete. This is... This is a whole different conversation. Whole different conversation, yeah. <laughs> but worth getting into because of where this conversation is going. To this point, we have been listening to the vinyl editions of these records um, exclusively. This album, it merits this deluxe edition because you hear so much more of the crowd engagement, the crowd building, you hear way more of the set. It's like triple the length. You hear basically the entire set in a way that for 40 years we were told was not at all possible to ever happen. We only had these five songs. Um, there was like a mic issue with this Paul Gonzalez thing that we're going to get into. Uh, and we were told for many years that uh, it would never be remedied and we'd never be able to hear the whole version of this performance and the impact yeah. that it had. You had mentioned that the show was running behind. So they leave the stage after their first short set. And then there's like a couple of last minute additions of acts. And so this show is supposed to close at midnight. And Duke and his crew don't take the stage for their second set until 11.45. And they're not happy about that. Although by this time, the missing band members have arrived. So <laughs> at least they've got a full crew. Yes. <laughs> And they can play to nobody now. Can, yeah, right. <laughs> and so Duke is like, all right, this is this is it, man. They, he gives them a pep talk. They finally get back on and they play a couple of numbers leading up to the Newport suite. And that's where this album opens. It's a three-part suite and it flopped. Yeah. It flopped. They had everything riding on it and it didn't seem to grab anybody's attention. It by the way, it sounds wonderful. Yes. This is, it It speaks to the impossibly high standards of both this show and the standards that he has set for himself. Mm -hmm. Because when you listen to this, and uh, the Newport suite on the album is actually a studio cut, mm -hmm. and they've piped in crowd noise because it just didn't do that well. Mm -hmm. But when you hear it, it sounds incredible. Like the three parts are, they blend well together. I'll say that the the opening is like a kind of a clarinet, which does date it a little bit um, outside of the 1956 era. It feels more like it should be in 1940 or something like that. But it's sharply performed. They're, the band is really, really, really on it. I can't, I can't imagine being there and being like, yeah, this ain't it. One thing that I think is so cool and interesting about it is that uh, that plunger mute yeah. that's used on the very end of, uh, I believe it's Festival Junction, mm -hmm. this, this first track on the original recording. Uh, the actual act of taking a plunger, uh, like the the head of a plunger and putting it on the end of a horned instrument to use as a mute and like reshape the 
end of the horn to create different like vocal sounds. And they're basically screaming these at you at the end of the song. It's so much emotion. Somebody was feeling that oh, in yeah. the moment. It's very powerful. So cool to listen to. And the third part, which is called uh, Newport Up, mm-hmm. it jumps. Like there's life there. Mm-hmm. There is so much like cooking. And for whatever reason on this night, it just didn't didn't connect. You know, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with that idea that um, not, I mean, everybody is exhausted at the end of a music yeah. festival. But even on top of that, this idea that Ellington was been there, done that. You know, we got to see him this morning, but even more than that, we've gotten to see him for the last 30 years. 30 years. You know, like, why would we stick around until one o'clock in the morning just to see more of what he's been able to show us before? And then he's like, I'm about to show you why you should have stuck around. Because the suite does not do as well as he was hoping. The band's kind of out of it. And he took a moment and he called for a song or two pieces called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue. I want to talk a little bit about the origination of this or these pieces, depending on how you look at it. Um, Duke wrote this piece in 1937. So it's something he'd been working on for a really long time. Emphasis on the word working. Working. (laughs) Because it was a lot of working and reworking and reworking. He cared so deeply and so passionately about this piece. And it's in its original form, it was titled Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue. Uh, But with time, these have been manipulated into separate pieces. Um, Early on, it was two separate pieces, each recorded on a different side of a 78, and each uh, titled, respectively, uh, Diminuendo in Blue and Crescendo in Blue. Uh, And then he would toy around with placing these two pieces in different orders with different fillers conjoining the two into one piece. He tried putting a solo piano piece in between them. He tried playing uh, with different full songs in between them, including I Got a Bad and That Ain't Good, which is another song featured in the full performance, uh, including Carnegie Blues and including Translucency, which was written to be riffed over by a vocalist, uh, Kay Davis, I believe. Um, The most successful bridge he found between these two songs is the one he found in that moment on that day, and he didn't really take any part in playing it. Uh, It was this solo piece by uh, tenor saxophonist Paul Gonzalez, who he gave this solo piece in the middle and basically told him, just let her rip. Like, play what you're feeling, and we're all going to follow you and join in together and move with you and create this piece together in real time. Gonzalez was basically a hometown guy. He grew up in New Bedford, which is only 30-ish miles from Newport. So there's like a lot of folks that he knows that are in the crowd that are there specifically to see him. And there's it's this really great moment of him getting to step into the spotlight and give the performance of a lifetime, as we're going to get into, in front of his family and his friends and the people he grew up with. To do that backed by the Duke Ellington Orchestra 
is, can you imagine a higher peak? Oh my God. <laughs> it's, be- and not just backed by them. Everybody is moving in awe with you. Like there's this palpable feeling of tension on the stage that is like so concentrated and derived from this moment of we are doing it right now. Yeah. We're all in this moment. There was a quote from the trombonist. His name's John Sanders. Leading up to this song, everything had kind of gone over pretty poorly. And he said that the audience applauded, but it was just applause. And so that tension that you're talking about is the band feeling like, fuck, like we gotta, we gotta go. We gotta go right now. It's worth noting that the the events around this specific moment. So Paul starts playing in between these two pieces and there is this anonymous woman who we may have discovered her name since. Uh, but there's all these stories about her where as the piece is getting is picking up and as everybody's listening to this solo that he is like that is like pouring from Mm. him people start slowly trickling back into this crowd and getting curious and being drawn in and this woman in one of the front rows starts getting really excited and stands up and starts dancing and everybody is excited and they're egging her on and they're excited by the piece and excited so excited by the atmosphere that everybody else starts getting up and dancing and they're yelling and they're getting caught up in this piece. Oh, and off stage there is Joe Jones, who is this really big time drummer. He played with Count Basie for mm-hmm. a long time that night. I think he was playing with a, a guy named Teddy Wilson, mm-hmm. but he is off stage yelling yeah, to the woman, yelling to the woman. He's also yelling to the band and he's like swatting a Christian science monitor magazine <laughs> in time and mm-hmm. like urging this band on. And so the, the the horns start to see Joe Jones and they start to feed on that. Mm-hmm. And this is this is like re- the real beauty of live music is yes. that you can create this energy not from nothing. It's but, like a tornado. Yeah. Everybody like putting themselves into it and grabbing off the energy from the people around them. Yes. And to go like you can you can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat is essentially what's what's happening here. And everybody starts to feel this energy turn when Gonzalez starts to play. It's like three minutes or four minutes into the song. And by his like sixth or seventh chorus, that's when folks see this lady, I believe her name was Elaine Anderson. That's correct. Is just freewheeling it, just hanging out, enjoying it, just dancing and it feeds even more into it and the dam breaks keep in mind this chorus goes for 27 choruses it lasts 10 minutes and in this 10 minutes if we're like five choruses in when this starts hyping up by the time 27 comes around, <laughs> this entire crowd is worked up into a frenzy. Uh, everybody's worried. They're starting to stampede the stage. People are going crazy. Everybody loves it. It's everything Duke Ellington only dreamed of for the last 10 years. And it's all happening right now. And 
I, I really love this part, which is that the producer, uh, George Avakian, he went backstage to hear mm-hmm. how it was sounding. Be- and the, the engineer, the Columbia recording engineer, his name was Pappy Thoreau, he couldn't see what was happening. He only had two, like, two fold-back speakers. So he could only hear what was happening. So when Gazalva starts to solo, they're like, like, what the fuck? Like, what's going on? Because he had closed his eyes and was soloing his ass off into the wrong microphone. Yes. Yes. He was going. And so George Avakian runs back to the side of the stage and is like trying to wave him down. And it's like, hey. It's, it's lost at this point. He's in the moment. Yeah. And the second you break that guy's attention, you break the whole song. Yeah, exactly. And so he's going. He, uh, there's like some connection between George Avakian and Duke Ellington where that message is conveyed. And so Duke is trying to like, Paul. Over here, like <laughs> over here, and it's just not happening. He's just going, and the crowd is into it, and you just, they just have to gamble that it's going to come across. Mm-hmm. This like the uh, Elaine Anderson is known as the woman who launched seven thousand fans or seven thousand cheers because the tide has turned. This crowd is super into it, and Duke Ellington is now catapulted back to the top of the jazz world right now. 27 courses does Paul Gonzalez is soloing. Apparently, somewhat inebriated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about that the second that I read about him like stirring this crowd up into a frenzy. I was like, this dude's been drinking all day. <laughs> you can't, first of all, you can't grab his attention and tell him to wail into another mic. But even on top of that, like, I this is uh, I guess the perfect time where everything moved into place and that alcohol hit his system just enough that he wasn't even there anymore. He's just vibing. Yeah. And so he was a really big fan of a saxophonist called Ben Webster, named mm-hmm. Ben Webster, who he he was noted for his very lovely feel of ballads. And you can hear a lot of that in Paul Gonzalez. He's not aggressive in this solo. He is falling back into the groove. The groove of this song is really what drives mm-hmm. it. His solo takes it to a totally different level. It's a piece yes. in the machine. It's not the whole center right. piece. He's not stepping up to burn out and like mm-hmm. just fly around in a bebop style. He is just riding this groove and you can feel it. Like that drum line and like the the rhythm section, they're just they're in it. And for all of the patchwork um, studio recording and re-recording that is on this album, in every version of this record, the diminuendo and crescendo in blue is a live version. It is there. There was they couldn't patchwork it together. It is totally live, and it's a credible performance. But in one version, you can hear this solo a lot better yes and there's a specific reason for that that we referenced earlier so he played in the wrong mic yes played into the wrong mic and they were like well that's that's it but we know who to whom this mic belonged it belonged to the united states uh, propaganda network 
No, it's not. No. <laughs> we talked about this. <laughs> it, it belonged to Voice of America, which is the uh, the state-owned radio station. Some folks call it propaganda. And then many, <laughs> many years later, in 1999, they released this expanded expanded version is like saying it lightly <laughs> like uh we took this album from uh five tracks to 40 tracks with some tracks being as short as just like 16 right. seconds long because it's like an introduction to another act or a reaction to one of the songs this remaster is over two hours long and the last 11 tracks of the remaster were not even a part of the performance no because the diminuendo and crescendo of blue that's that's where the album ends mm -hmm. is like this huge release of like Holy shit, they did it. They're back on top of the world and the album ends there. But that's not where the show ended. Mm -hmm. Because once you've whipped the crowd up into this frenzy, you can't let them go. And that was supposed to be the show closer. And Duke was like, nah, nah, -uh. we're, we're, not, we're not letting this go. And we're well past time at this point. Like they're supposed to close the show at 12 mm -hmm. and it was like 1230. It's yeah. like 1245. And uh, Duke seizes the moment and they played five more songs after what was supposed to be their closer. And George Ween, who was, who was the founder of the festival, uh, he like comes on stage and tries to shoo off Duke Ellington. Like, hey man, like we gotta, we gotta go. It's time. Like we're way past time. And the crowd is like, yelling yeah, at them, like, like absolutely. cursing at them. Yeah. How dare you? And Duke convinces George Ween to just just let me tell yeah, him good night. Come on. Just, just, just let me tell him good night. <laughs> and he goes back on and he's like, actually, there's five more songs. Five more songs. Are you kidding me? He's been waiting for this to happen again for years. This is his opportunity. You can, by the way, one of these zillion extra tracks on this expanded edition is like a minute long encapsulation of the riot reaction it's called to, pandemonium it's it's called riot prevention yeah, ri riot yeah. Prevention. <laughs> it's uh it, but it is pandemonium yeah. it's just a minute and eight seconds of pure screaming and like this is like um it's all of like the sexiest rock and roll hype like that you have seen throughout the ages. It's all of the young fangirls at the boy band concert. Yeah. You know, it is pure pandemonium just based off of the fact that this performance felt like it wasn't just the band playing. It was the audience as well. You know, it was an entire collaboration. Did you a couple more songs? He then calls a nine minute drum feature, which is called Skin Deep kicks so Hell much yeah. ass uh, sam woodyard is the drummer for this show and he just destroys it and that is kind of the thing that finally breaks the crowd where they're just like fuck we mm -hmm. we're spent and so finally uh he starts to he has the band play mood indigo which is one of his mm -hmm. his standards it's is a very classic. great lovely come down so he closed the show by saying his like it was a a variation of his signature sign off which was ladies and gentlemen we certainly want to thank you for the way you've inspired us this evening. You're very beautiful, very sweet, and we do love you madly. As we say goodnight, we want to give you our best wishes and hope we have this pleasure again next year. Thank you very much. And what a nice way 
to send people away who oh, they, they were still clamoring for more. I know. But he was like, Yeah, we got it. He go. was soaking it up too. And he was a gentleman, you know? This is all part of his persona. He that is like the most Duke Ellington <laughs> really sign off to be like, oh my gosh, oh my fans, stop, you guys. Yeah. He just slayed him and he's like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you. Honestly, thank you. Yeah. I strongly recommend hunting down the complete edition, the Duke, Oof. the Ellington at Newport complete. It helps, it helps hear the Fill narrative. Fill in the blanks yeah. quite a bit. Um, the, the original LP is amazing, mm-hmm. uh, but the complete edition is really, you can hear the narrative that we just talked mm-hmm. about so, so well in that complete edition. It feels like an event while the original is wonderful, by the way. It's so great. Um, but the original comparatively now feels like uh, a more of a studio album yeah, than sure. a live album. It's, the band had to re-record things the next day. The, the show didn't end till like one thirty or two, and they had to go into the studio the next day. They were not happy about that. No, <laughs> but so this launches the back end of Duke Ellington's career. You had something about the the Time Magazine cover. Yes. Okay. So first of all, like what this album meant to Duke's career uh, when. Later in life, when asked about his age, Ellington would often respond, I was born in 1956 at the Newport Festival. Hell yeah. Because this this one performance turned his entire career around and made him a household name once again in a way that he was worried he would never be able to become. He would go on to record a slew of classic records with contemporary jazz musicians, Money Jungle, Duke Ellington meets Coleman Hawkins, Ellington and Coltrane. Those are all monster, monster records. And a lot of that is from being launched or relaunched at that Newport performance. Uh, Shortly after this uh, album came out about, or shortly after this performance happened, about a month after Time magazine put a portrait of him on the cover of their new uh, issue, and he had a large article uh, all dedicated to him. And it seemed as though this article was coming off of the excitement from this concert. But many, many years later, uh, this guy named Charles Walters noticed that the portrait painted of Ellington that was on the cover of that issue of time was actually commissioned months before the Newport Festival. And after a little research, he concluded that the article had been planned far in advance with Ellington hoping it would be centered around his planned performance with the New Haven Symphony Orchestra, which was like a week after this Newport Festival. But the guy, uh, the journalist who was writing the article, Carter Harmon, uh, he attended the Newport Festival. So, uh, it was pretty clear <laughs> that the article was going to be steered in this direction hard. And the article the article became much longer. It was now a centerpiece. You know, he was, uh, this blew up his status to like godlike proportions. Everybody thinks of the name Duke Ellington when they think of jazz now. But that might never have happened if this record hadn't been released, if that solo hadn't been played, if Paul decided to go get drunk and uh, didn't show up for the second half of this show, you know, 
Um, so many factors clicked into place to make this it's to make this a historic moment in jazz. It's important in live music. It's important in jazz. It's important in this person's career. You just God, you just listen to it and it's you can feel the energy. You can just feel it. And that's that's the mark of a great live record is if you're listening to it years removed from it and you can feel that energy still. Ellington at Newport is a perfect storm. If we were to put together a metaphorical performance to encapsulate the importance of this record, we would invite a few key players, timing being the first. As a jazz forward audience began to clamor for something new, it seemed like there was nothing a big band legend could do to remind them of the glory that tone brought to the scene. Without the reliability of another invaluable factor, the boundless drive and determination possessed by the band leader, this career revival may have never come to pass. This was a man with a seemingly bottomless wealth of talent and ideas, a man that lived, breathed, and ate jazz for dinner, a man that fought for the respect that he had worked so hard for out on that stage and gave the world every last morsel of emotion that he had. This man very well may have faded quietly into history, accepting the fate of obscurity he knew he deserved better than. This performance is an encapsulated representation of this man giving it all he has, screaming to a tuned out world to be heard with his visions for what music could be, and we are lucky enough to be able to experience now what that crowd did then, pure awe for the love of the craft. Hell yeah. That's great. So, whether you've heard it before or you haven't heard it at all, listen to the fucking record. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I want to lead our plug section with a jazz recommendation from us. The tenor sax solo that accompanies Spencer's opening theme is played by longtime amoebite David Otis. Uh, he's part of a nine-piece jazz band called Catalyst with a K, and you can find their latest release on the Jazz is Dead website. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, we don't want those. Or if you want to recommend, <laughs> if you want to recommend a particular record that we should cover, hit us up at our email, earwaxpodcast at amoeba-music.com. If you want to check out Amoeba's Facebook and Instagram pages, it is at Amoeba Berkeley, at Amoeba SF, and at Amoeba Hollywood. And Amoeba Hollywood has a TikTok page at Amoeba Hollywood. And make sure to check out our social media pages on Instagram and TikTok at earwaxpod. You can sign up for Amoeba's email list for contests, coupons, and updates on things going on in the store. Uh, check out our website for free shipping on music and movies at any time. And also look up our web series, What's in My Bag, where we invite artists into the store and they tell you about different albums and movies and things that inspired them. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you around the store.